In this podcast, I had a chance to catch up with Professor Mark Emberton. Mark is the Dean of the Faculty of Medical Sciences at UCL in London, an honorary consultant urologist at University College London Hospitals and a professor of interventional oncology in the Division of Surgery and Interventional Science at UCL. Mark has for a long time been interested in diagnosis in prostate cancer and particularly moving away from the traditional approach of biopsying to understanding whether more modern imaging techniques can pinpoint cancer in men at an early stage and better segment them for different therapeutic options that they may have. He also has a strong interest in minimally invasive techniques such as HIFU for the treatment of prostate cancer, bridging that gap between watchful waiting on the one hand and more radical intervention with surgery or radiotherapy on the other. Mark has performed pioneering work in the UK in changing the paradigm of how we detect prostate cancer in men who come to clinical care through the use of MRI and uh, PET scanning. In this recording, we discuss the rapid rise of these novel imaging techniques and look at future directions within early prostate cancer diagnosis, ending finally on some thoughts about how we may offer different treatment approaches to men based on what we find on imaging. Well, um, uh, I wear several hats. Uh, uh, so I'm, I'm a, first of all, I'm a urologist. So um, I look after patients with prostate cancer um, and I try and kind of couple my clinical activities with my research activities. Uh, I look after men at the beginning of the uh, cancer pathway. So in other words, through diagnosis and very early treatment. Uh, so this is when prostate cancer is confined to the prostate. And therefore, a lot of my research has been about improving the diagnostic pathway um, and coming up with new methods of treating prostate cancer that um, are less harmful, um, hopefully less costly, uh, and might be more sustainable. Uh, I, I also have a, a kind of leadership role within the university, University College London or UCL, uh, where I am Dean of the Faculty of Medical Sciences. So I have the great privilege of um, uh, leading um, uh, research and teaching in, in surgery, dentistry, medicine, cancer, infection and immunity and the medical school. So that's the clinically facing faculty uh, within a what is a very large university. So that's 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 how I um, I kind of spread my week. Fantastic. Thank you. I know um, over the years, you and I have uh, worked together on a number of projects. And, and when we started out all those years ago, in terms of cancer detection, it was uh, things have come on a long uh, way. Uh, we were arguing about how many cores of biopsies we'd do to find prostate cancer, and that was pretty much the limit of the, the debate. And you've obviously done a huge amount of work on uh, MRI-based uh, methodologies uh, and on PSMA-based methodologies. And I'd really like to get your take about how those two things relate to each other, where you see the pros and cons of those different approaches and all the research you've done in that area. I mean, you're, you're reflecting on a, a very recent past, actually. It's just amazing to see how much has changed in a relatively short period of time. But 
um, you know, to, to, to go over the history, we, we have to accept and acknowledge that um, we've been treating prostate cancer for 100 years. Uh, the first radical prostatectomy was done just over 100 years ago by a chap called Hugh Hampton Young at Johns Hopkins. And, and 100 years since, uh, we've been treating prostate cancer without being able to see it. Um, now, many other cancers um, uh, we could see with uh, x-rays, lung cancer, for instance, uh, CT scans, uh, brain allowed us to see kind of brain cancer and then change our management. Prostate was probably the last cancer, actually last solid organ cancer uh, that we were treating without being able to see it. And hence your reference to these random biopsies. So, you know, we would, um, I'm gesticulating now that the, the, those listening to the podcast can't see it, but we used to, um, it was kind of needle in a haystack type thing. And, and the more needles you put in the biopsy, into the prostate, the greater the chances you had of hitting prostate cancer. Those huge imprecision. And we were telling men they were all clear when they weren't. Uh, we were telling men they had low risk disease when in fact they had high risk disease when the needle just caught maybe the edge of a large tumour. Um, and, and so we were missing cancer, we're misclassifying cancer. Uh, and actually, I think to get a to get a straight diagnosis, you needed to have basically your your prostate replaced by cancer so that the needles got a direct hit. Um, now, imaging has transformed that. Um, you know, the prostate's hard to image. You know, it sits behind bone, in front of air, the rectum, and, and below water. So you have all these very contrasting densities uh, which make imaging really quite difficult. And, and, and the target, remember, is fairly small. Prostates are roughly the size of a walnut on average. Um, they vary hugely. Um, and and it, it was a long time um, MRI was used in the brain, long before it was used in the prostate. Um, uh, but but you know in, in, in about 2000, early 2000, late uh, 1990s, uh, we started to to use it very kind of tentatively to see if we could see the prostate. Um, and 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 you know the answer is that you you could see the prostate and that with multiple sequences. Uh, you could see the cancer, um, and 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 that took a long time. Actually, interesting discussion about about how long it takes to get something into practice. Uh, and obviously, it was a kind of um, enthusiastic pursuit of ours. Uh, initially, um, we could see it. Sometimes we couldn't. Could we really see it? You know, and 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 this kind of art of verification. Uh, and and then it really took two very large studies, uh, which were publicly funded. Um, so um, the the promise study and precision um, that were published in the Lancet New England Journal of Medicine that were multi-center uh, and designed to prove without doubt that um, an image-based pathway was superior to a non-image-based pathway, and then that and then and then the dial turned. Uh, nice, the uh, National Institute of Clinical and Care Excellence in April of 2019 said all men should have an MRI prior to a biopsy, and that was the moment. Um, that 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 changed everything um, and now and now it would be very rare it still happens uh, but it'd be very rare for a man you know in in in, in the global north uh, where mris are widely available to have a biopsy without an mri beforehand and and the, and the, the really important thing about mri is that is that it, it puts some distance between the psa test which is the initial triage test that most men have and the biopsy and it does mean that um, you can have a, you can pause, you can have a discussion, uh, you can discuss what to do next, uh, you can use time, uh, and then most of all, uh, you can use the uh, spatial location of the tumor to change the way that you do the biopsies. So, so 
it's, it's made what we call risk stratification, which is basically an accurate diagnosis, uh, much, much, much better. And that means that you're much more likely to get the treatment uh, that is suited to you. And that might be surveillance. It might be no treatment. It might be, you know, lots of treatment and it might be uh, maybe a, a treatment selective to, to the lesion. Now, and, and you mentioned PSMA PET. I'm, 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 I'm less expert in that area, but um, uh, I'm not married to MRI. I'm just I'm married to um, uh, ability to see the cancer. And um, and actually, it's interesting, different technologies uh, feature extract. So they see different aspects of the cancer. Um, and therefore, I'm of the view that they're all useful. Uh, we have to work out what the kind of incremental utility of one over the other, you know, given the cost of doing everything. Um, uh, but, you know, if you, you can have an MRI negative cancer that is PSMA PET positive, uh, that is ultrasound negative. Um, ultrasound historically uh, was not able to see cancer. But there's some thought now that that um, very high frequency ultrasound uh, using a lot, lot of post-processing can allow you to see some cancers. I think it's fairly early days yet. Uh, but just to show that, you know, we're, we're, we're using multiple imaging modalities and we're currently in the process of creating a taxonomy, I think, of cancers based on the way that they express themselves um, as as depicted by different imaging systems. Um, and, you know, the way cancers express must be a function of the underlying genetics of the cancer and the gene expression. So in other words, the kind of proteins that are being made by that particular cancer at that moment in time. And we are seeing, you know, an aspect of that. What we have to do now is try and work out whether uh, what we're seeing uh, helps in terms of diagnosis and possibly in terms of prognosis. So I guess there might be some limitations when you talk about protein expression with PSMA because it's so targeted that presumably if you're catching it at the wrong point in the life cycle. That may not be the most optimal target for radiology. Is that a fair comment? I think I think that's right. I mean, also the the spatial resolution of PSMA PET um, is 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 unlike MRI. MRI can tell you exactly, you know, to, to the nearest couple of millimeters where the cancer is. Your PSMA PET will give you a left, right, front, back type kind of image, but but it's still uh, better than nothing. And remember, some men cannot have an MRI. If you've got a little bit of um, uh, metal in your eye, for instance, nobody will let you near a strong magnet um, uh, for fear of losing that eye. And, and so it's really good to have uh, another imaging modality that we can use either to prove, to try and prove the negative, i.e. you don't need a biopsy, uh, or to help direct the needles. And of course, PSMA PET, uh, we're talking about its use in the prostate. We must remember that it has a uh, a very, very important role in in staging men outside um, the prostate, and in fact, is the standard of care now for its replaced bone scan, just to make sure that the cancer hasn't spread beyond the prostate. Absolutely, and and over this time period that you've been uh, describing in this very, very rapid evolution from from pointing needles in in the dark effectively to to using MRI, what what's been happening in terms of you know, the sort of two golden bits of sensitivity and specificity, because obviously, as you say, you want to know where exactly the tumour is, but also you want to try and rule out disease that doesn't need biopsy because it's benign. Um, what, what's been happening? Have we got better at that? 
Yeah, I mean, um, not everything we see is cancer. That's and that's that's part of the a problem. And so um, uh, there are changes on the MRI that look like cancer, and they are principally um, regional inflammation. Uh, and you know, the prostates are in relative communication to the outside world. We know that there are viral particles and bacterial particles uh, which probably exist naturally there. Uh, we know prostates get infected. Um, and 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 sometimes that manifests, and and that you know um, it, bits of inflammation have um, increased cellularities, have more cells per unit volume, they have a, a greater blood supply, uh, and those are two attributes that we would normally associate with cancer, and so there's there's quite an overlap at the moment, um, and you know when we see a positive MRI, you, you have two options currently, um, you can wait and see if that lesion grows over time. And there's precedent in, in lung cancer, for instance, if you've got an indeterminate nodule uh, on a CT scan and you're worried about lung cancer, you wait. If it stays stable, it's an adenoma. It's not a cancer. If it grows, it's a cancer. So you can use time or you can target that um, that lesion. Now, uh, in the future, um, uh, no podcast uh, is, is free of the uh, uh, term, you know, artificial intelligence. Um, now, in the future, we, we would hope to use artificial intelligence or machine learning to, to help us make that discrimination. Um, th th there will be differences between the MRI manifestation of inflammation uh, versus cancer. The human eye and the human brain aren't brilliant at um, discriminating between the two. Uh, but, you know, the, the whole field of radiomics to extract features that the eye can't see um, that tells us something about the underlying architecture uh, is something that um, that I'm sure we'll be using in the future. That's a really interesting point and obviously that's starting to pervade lots of uh, areas of um, medicine. I know uh, a colleague of yours, Hugh Montgomery at UCL, used it to look at predictors in ICU of bad outcome and found all sorts of yeah. things in the data but you need you need a pretty large volume don't you to go through to to get the algorithms to learn have you got is that something you're pursuing that that large database based approach yeah so so we're doing two things we're curating uh, near perfect data sets um where where and this is a a, a, um, a study called reimagine which is funded by the MRC and um uh, CRUK, uh, Cancer Research UK, um, and and it basically it's a thousand men uh, where we uh, have fantastic imaging, very good biopsies, uh, and we collect urine and blood um, and um, you know uh, and and clinical information on those individuals to try and create a a very very accurate data set of histopathology and imaging and um, the molecular underlying molecular kind of changes that uh, are driving everything now and, and, and I proudly go to a computer scientist with a, a, a thousand cases in my in my uh, in my <laughs> in my pocket or briefcase and, and they laugh at me you know uh, that they, they they need a lot more than that um, um, I mean this this would be very helpful in 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 verification, I think, um, of, of other models, but they, they, they need MRIs in the tens of thousands. Now, now we have those, uh, but they are they sit in hospitals. Um, they they are slightly harder to access uh, because of um, confidentiality issues, um, because also, um, you know, everybody thinks they're sitting on a gold mine 
uh, in terms of um, you know working with you know the big companies out there such as you know Google, Microsoft, etc., uh, who are all working in this space. Um, and so, properly annotated, appropriately anonymized, uh, you know, well characterized, large large data sets of MRIs um, have proved remarkably hard to get hold of. Um, and indeed, uh, companies who want to generate uh, those types of data sets will pay quite a lot of money um, to 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 get radiologists from around the world to start uh, annotating uh, those data sets. So um, uh, that can't yet be done automatically. And so it involves quite a lot of unglamorous work at present to get those data sets ready so you can feed them into the machine. Um, and and that's 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 holding things back a little bit um, at present. And I think I'm not alone in feeling the frustration um, of accessing these large data sets of, of which we, you know, in, in the UK probably hold the largest um, in um, in prostate MRI because we've been doing it longer than anybody else. But remember, they're done on different platforms. They're done on different sequences. So so they're a mess um, and and it requires a human being plus a, a robot um, to to get rid of that mess uh, and, and prepare them so that you can input them into um, a machine learning algorithm. Presumably because you also need the correlate with the histopathology correct, correct. And, the, and the biomarkers that that collation is is, yeah. is even more fraught. Um, in in uh, Reimagine, which I know has been running for a few years now, you mentioned that you're looking at different um, blood and urine born markers. Are you just, is this a fairly standard battery of these or is it starting to explore novel correlates or what, what's the approach? So we created Reimagine to work with industry so that we would get the latest um, kind of technologies in um, and, and, and we kind of gift with the patient's permission, of course, uh, gift urine and blood uh, and indeed uh, digital histopathology to AI companies. We've got about 20, 20 rising um, uh, companies currently working with us uh, within Reimagine who have uh, who are developing biomarkers, have a biomarker they wish to validate, have a biomarker they wish to work with, you know, um, as a companion to imaging, uh, which which they haven't been able to do because imaging studies are so expensive. Um, and 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 we're we're op we've got open arms to any any company that wants to come in and work with us. Um, basically, we don't want their background IP, but obviously, if, if something comes of the uh, partnership, then 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 one would share. Um, IP, uh, so intellectual property on, on that basis. And that's proved a really good model. And we've got very large multinational companies. We've got university spin out companies. Um, you know, not all survived. It's quite interesting uh, in the in the you'll know this, Alex, better than <laughs> I, but, you know, reimagine has been going on four or five years now. And, you know, companies come and go um, and um, and and some some have obviously stood the test of time. Um, but some really interesting companies that we partnered with initially no longer exist. Either they've been bought out or their funding has run out um, and other companies have emerged. So um, so we, re we remain open. And so the mix changes, uh, but we've got a we've got a kind of mix of AI companies looking at the digital histopathology, AI companies looking at the imaging. Mm -hmm. We've got some uh, increasing amount of urine companies um, who are looking at the urine largely for proteins mainly. Um, and of course, the big explosion in um, uh, multi-cancer early detection tests. So um, these are looking for circulating 
cancer DNA. Um, I'm told there are 54 such companies at present. Uh, we've got a couple uh, working with us, but I'm sure that will grow uh, with time. Uh, but, but obviously the, um, the urine and blood will run out. So we have to curate that carefully and we have to make uh, decisions which might be the right or the wrong decisions about who to go with um, for that. Of the MRI um, digital data sets and the histopathology obviously will last forever and we, we want as many people to use those as possible. So you've got, you're describing you've got proteomics, you've got circulating uh, DNA uh, which as you say is really coming to the fore and moving hugely rapidly and the detection is getting much better on smaller volumes which is a, a very necessary i don't think it's that long ago you pr pretty much had to do plasma phoresis to get any kind of level of right. dna out of a, a, a patient uh, is there any genomics going on in this or is yep. it all yeah yep. so it's it, that's that's funded so um we've got um, about a thousand pounds per per subject per participant to spend uh, on genomics we've 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 kept our powder dry at present. Uh, my colleague Gert Attard is leading uh, that um, uh, work stream um, and, and we're, we're going to make a final decision on how we use that money uh, to do the genomics um, of the, the cancer. Um, it, it's a given that we'll do the germline, so we'll do the, uh, the, the kind of um, um, genes that the patients were born with. We'll do that separately, that's going to be done, but we're interested in the genomics of the cancer and also um, the um, genomics of the background prostate. And so um, all the men in Reimagine had an abnormality on their prostate. Um, not all abnormalities will be cancer, some will be inflammation, uh, but we're, we're, we're taking biopsies from the lesion and freeze, freezing those, uh, archiving those, but we're also taking um, biopsies from the normal prostate, from the other side of the prostate. So we've got some control biopsies and, and we know that um, there are actually like in a lot of background tissue there are a lot of genetic mutations that look really worrying uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean um, that that individual will, will form a cancer but um, that that might be very useful prognostic information on individuals that maybe test negative for cancer initially of course we're going to follow everybody up and, and I say that having listened to talks on the esophagus the normal esophagus is kind of riddled with um, um, you know, genetic mutations that look lethal, but um, many of those individuals are not destined. So, so I don't think we've, we we don't fully understand that. You know, there's, or there's some distance between the genetic uh, signature and um, the manifestation of cancer, uh, and that's hopefully something we'll be able to look at um, by following these men. You know, uh, throughout the remaining life. Yeah, and I mean, if you go back into the genomics around prostate cancer, there's literally dozens if not hundreds of genes that might have some kind of minor yeah. relationship as opposed to you know some cancers where you've got very obvious mutational drivers so presumably there's a bit of needle in the haystack here as well um, to go looking for is, is presumably this is also able to look at epigenetic changes in the tumor versus the normal tissue which could be more of a useful clue I guess to... very, very, very much so yes so so we're open to um, you know, we've got a strong epigenetic group at UCL who will, will have got access to the reimagined data, um, and, and it, it may be that um, you know that that's that's the key area. But you're right, prostate cancer tends to be a kind of the result of an accumulation, uh, an increase of multiple mutations over time, 
um, and, and time seems to be an important element, which is obviously related to aging. Uh, but the higher Gleason scores have more of those mutations than the lower Gleason scores. Uh, and understanding, you know, we may not have enough data to 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 work out the 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 the, the, the complete pathway because because it's going to be complicated by its very nature. Uh, but hopefully, we'll have um, you know some some degree or improve the understanding at least to some degree. And I, my understanding is that um, Reimagine's been recruiting for about three years. Is when are we likely to to see some outcomes? So, so, so <laughs> COVID happened, right? So, uh, yeah. So, um, yeah. I, I know it's been uh, it's been a fantastic. We're fully recruited um, in Reimagine. Um, we were delayed by by a year. So, so um, when COVID hit, you know, that spring, we were we were recruiting. Like most studies, we started slightly late, so we were a little bit behind, but the curve was going upwards and then COVID hit. and We got a flat curve um, for about a year. Um, it was it was one of the first studies to close because we were bringing in, you know, men into into hospitals at a time when, you know, we wanted to keep people away from hospitals. But it was also one of the first studies to reopen um, because we did our due diligence and, and set up very very worked very hard to set up safety controls in fact worked with patients very closely um, about what they would expect what they would tolerate uh, and, and what hospitals required uh, and and that work with the patient groups was incredibly important uh, in in getting um, reimagined up and running again and in fact I, I show the curves quite often as a kind of success story um, you know, so but basically it's S-shaped. So we were going up, then it's flat, and then it then it goes up. And we um, we, we were about a year behind um, our expected recruitment. But many many other studies uh, failed. They they just couldn't restart. Uh, they were deprioritized, and many of those studies, as I'm sure you know, have been closed um, because there was a, the, the number of open studies not recruiting in the UK was was huge, and they were all consuming resource. So so um, there was a bit of a cull. But uh, we, we made it, and, and in fact, I think the MRC considered it an incredible success. Great testimony, actually, uh, to the patients who were determined to improve the diagnostic pathway uh, and the incredible team that we had um, at, at UCL, at Imperial, and at uh, the Royal Free. It's a little bit London-centric. Um, uh, the, the only reason for that is that the, um, the technician team um, used, to, used to cycle or, you know, between the three hospitals, uh, we didn't have a technician. We didn't have resource for a technician team that could be distributed around the country. I guess something very straightforward here. There was no opportunity for remote assessment, so you had to find ways to get the patients in for all of this. Uh, yeah. It's not like running a depression trial where you could do, you know, online scoring or it, it all had to be done at the hospital centres, presumably. So, and, and presumably in the longer term. Uh, there's the opportunity of looking at prognostics here and finding out you know, in the longer term what happened to the patients uh, over time, but that's a much, much longer term <laughs> uh, yeah, horizon. Yeah. Is that all part of the, the plan? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the first one, the first plan is a cross-sectional analysis. Can we predict what's in the prostate? And and the, the if you take that to its kind of absurd kind of endpoint, it's it's basically can we can we get rid of biopsies? Can we extract enough information from the imaging from the you know urine blood uh, from the um, clinical history uh, of, of the individual maybe from the germline status to make a determination of what's in the prostate without sticking a needle in and and, and that would be something that um, patients want 
and would be something that would be quite incredible, I think, as, as the next big change in the diagnostic pathway. And I, I think we can get there. I think um, I think the feature extraction of the imaging, plus maybe a little bit of um, sense um, of, um, you know, what's going on in the prostate from blood or urine, um, um, plus knowledge of the germline, might give us enough to make it um, actually a, a pretty much a waste of time to stick a needle in to the prostate. Um, so, so that's that's the kind of um, first bit, and, and obviously we, we, we're basically creating a model of of what's in the prostate using all our partnerships with universities and and industry, and and it'll be basically a competition. You know, can can, can we get a model that is um, sufficiently accurate, you know, for patients? Because ultimately, patients we have to go to patients and work with them. Um, that, that that will allow them to forego biopsy, so they'll be able to make a treatment decision uh, based on a prior probability. And we do that. I mean, we remove a kidney based on a 95% probability of the abnormality being a cancer. Um, and you know, but obviously the the kidney's coming out, and you verify it. Um, there, there is an interesting there's an interesting move away from biopsy because nobody likes having a biopsy. Um, and there's a, a recent paper from Germany where 25 patients underwent radical prostatectomy without a prior biopsy, uh, but they did all have a positive MRI and a positive PSMA PET. And there was a 100% sensitivity at the patient level uh, for cancer. So all of them had cancer. And so, um, you know, if you've got a positive MRI and a positive uh, PSMA PET, it's cancer. Um, didn't so the sensitivity at the lesional level I think I can't remember 54 lesions I think in 25 patients from memory I may be wrong on that uh, was was about 98 percent so you know really really strong um, and and you could imagine that had had those 25 men been biopsied you would have missed some um, all of them would have been delayed because you have to have a biopsy and some would have been told they're all clear or they had Gleason 3 plus 3 and therefore would have had their their cancer delayed but they were I think they were all clinically significant again I'd have to check so while since I read the paper but just showing that um that it is possible um to make a treatment decision without uh histological confirmation up front and presumably because I know this is an area another area of very strong interest uh, from your side about trying to use minimally invasive techniques in other words appropriately passing the patients into different groups on the basis of what you're seeing so that they don't have to have a radical with the risks that that entails or radiotherapy with other kinds of, of, of risks. Do you, can you envisage a time then when you may be able to do that same graduation without using a biopsy of saying okay we can watch and wait this one we can minimally invade this one we can no, you need a radical because it's too high risk. Yeah. Again, going back to our uh, our first discussion about the the old-fashioned old way of, of, bio, of diagnosing a man. When we did a biopsy, we never really knew how much cancer was in the prostate. You, you, you never, because you, you never knew whether you got a direct hit or you caught the edge of something, you know, um, and, and if, 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 if several of your needles were positive, you don't know if they were three tiny areas or a big cancer that, that, that was hit. So, um, the only sensible and safe thing to do was to remove the prostate. So you um, you assume the worst um, uh, in those patients, and you offer them radical prostatectomy or radiotherapy. I, I mean, I'm I'm not talking about the microfocal Gleason three plus threes at present. So you know, um, now 
um, you can see something the size of a pea, um, uh, you know, uh, in the left upper quadrant of the prostate, and you can see the rest of the prostate is is clear. So, so you can have a completely different approach to to, to that, and um, and we, do, we and you don't need that extra level of safety because MRI is providing you with that very accurate risk stratification. Um, today, we, we would biopsy that um, 0.2 cc lesion, size of a pea. Um, and then we would either watch it or, or treat it. And you're right, you know, if, if, if you've got a 40 cc gland and you've got a 0.2 cc lesion, it, 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 it makes little sense to remove all the prostate, uh, especially with the attendant side effects of incontinence and erectile dysfunction, plus the risk of, of, of surgery, uh, when, you can, when you can selectively ablate it um, in the way that we've been doing with um, liver secondaries, you know, with um, you know, uh, lot, lots of lots of, with with uh, kidney um, historically o o over the last couple of decades, um, and 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 that's called focal therapy or you know tissue preserving therapy, but but is only uh, from my perspective it's a kind of natural consequence of of spatial s location, um, uh, and it and it. It, it kind of makes sense to do that. Obviously, there are lots of questions. You know, if you've made one cancer, will you make another cancer? Uh, but that question applies to breast. You know, you still have to keep an eye on the other breast. It applies to colon. You know, if you have a bit of colon removed, you still need a colonoscopy every two to three years. You know, if you have a brain cancer removed, you have a CT scan or an MRI of the brain once a year or whatever it is. So, so this the, the process of um, selective treatment with a margin and surveillance of the of the host organ is very very established um and and is and is one that um that increasingly now is available for men um with, with prostate cancer and obviously for the recipient for, for the for the man at risk um that conversation is is very welcome in eligible patients not everybody is eligible of course if you have you know, bulky bilateral disease, you need surgery or radiotherapy. There's no question. Uh, but, but you know, it's a big, big difference to, 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 to choose between surveillance, i.e. not doing very little, or removing your prostate is a, is a really difficult decision because um, yeah. they're very, very different treatments. And, um, and, and you know, it's, it's, it's just, I think it's too difficult a decision. So we've got this middle ground now um, where, where patients can have a treatment uh, that has virtually no side, nothing has no side effects, but you know, it, you're not going to be incontinent and there's a 95% chance you can keep your erections. Uh, and we've shown that in, in, in not ourselves, ourselves and others have shown it in many studies now. Um, but it also allows us from a kind of research perspective to um, understand the nascence of second primaries. Um, so <clears throat> in active surveillance, you've got low risk the chances of developing um, clinically significant disease is low. Um, in, in surgery and radiotherapy, you stop the story. Um, focal therapy allows us to treat a clinically significant cancer, you know, top right, and then and then observe the rest of the prostate and see how that changes over time. So so it's a it's a it's a it's a very, very important uh, research opportunity to try and understand how cancers are created in somebody who's already made a cancer. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating because you can then watch the natural history. You 
go through and presumably in, in uh, concordance with the other data you're collecting about genomics and protein, you may be able to unravel somebody who's had a single event who's unlikely to have another event again versus the person who's going to get another cancer and it's only a matter of time before they get another one presumably. No, exactly right. And, um, you know, um, cancer is, is, is always termed as, as multifocal, um, you know, uh, and, and we need to establish whether, whether that, that multifocality is a risk factor or not. Um, uh, you know, um, if you biopsy most people, you find Gleason 3 plus 3 and you find more of it the older they get. Um, uh, many of those uh, are, are not destined to progress. In fact, we, we, we know that. From active surveillance, some do. Um, I, I, I've also got, I, I, I keep uh, a, a collection of, of, of individuals with clinically significant cancer that is non-visible. So these are men that had um, extensive biopsies with a normal MRI. Um, and, and it's interestingly, um, not all cancers progress. So, um, and I, I, showed, I showed some of these at a meeting um, very recently. You know, and there are Gleason 4 plus 5s, Gleason 4 plus 4s, Gleason 3 plus 4s that are non-visible um, uh, and, and have remained non-visible um, and the PSAs remain flat for, um, you know, uh, six, seven years now, uh, which is which is really quite interesting. So it may be, um, and th this is my belief, uh, is that is that is that visibility is the key is the key attribute um, of, of cancer risk. Um, historically, uh, you and I know that cancer risk has been attributed by the way the cancer looks down the microscope. Um, but it may well be that actually conspicuity or visibility is, is the most important element. Why? Because they're bigger. There's 100 million cancer cells there. It, the cancer's developed a blood supply, which means you can see it on MRI. It's developed PSMA PET um, uh, detected, uh, uh, you know, um, signal on the outside of the, of the cell membrane. Uh, and, and there's something about the cancer that allows you to see it. Um, the increased cell density will manifest on the diffusion platform. And, and so conspicuity seems to me to be the, 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 probably the most important early attribute of cancer. And remember, you know, all, all other cancers exist um, when you can see them. Um, they, if you can't see them, <laughs> They don't exist. So if you have a mammogram that is that is clear, you're you're reassured. Yeah. If you have a, a liver scan that is clear, you're reassured. You know, you don't go after non-visible disease in solid organs. The prostate historically, there's still a, still quite a bit of remnant of that. Uh, urologists love biopsying the prostate um, in a systematic manner because that's what they were taught to do. Um, and so we find these non-visible cancers, but they may have very, very little biological you know, potential. Um, some of them may not survive um, because they are, by definition, small. So that's interesting. Those cases you, you've just outlined, because you talked about the duration, that the, the amount of time that you've been sitting on them as, as non-visible, and over that time period, even with the natural history of prostate cancer, that's still a relatively long time. So presumably they they actually aren't very aggressive. So back to your if I can see it, it's probably problematic. And if I can't, it isn't. It, it's it seems a basic decent rule of thumb. <laughs> yeah, uh, but it's it's um there aren't many people. Um, yeah, it, it's this is this is fascinating. So um so strong is the I mean the, the risk model of prostate cancer at the moment 
um, that that um, that is used um, doesn't have volume and doesn't have kind of imaging in it. So it has PSA. It has what you can feel on the end of your finger, uh, which is highly inaccurate. Uh, and it has the Gleason score. And the, the, the Gleason score is, 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 is basically um, looking at the pattern of, 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 um, of, of the way the prostate cancer is architecturally arranged. Um, um, if it looks like a prostate, it's a low Gleason score. If it looks like a kind of sheet of cells, it's a high Gleason score uh, for those for those listening. Uh, and that seems to be the main driver. And so we, we've we've not yet included um, imaging or, or or volume. I think prostate cancer is the only cancer that that has a TNM staging, um, which is the, the typical way that uh, cancers are staged that doesn't have image that has, doesn't have volume as a kind of key attribute. Yeah, that's fascinating. I was just thinking, trying to rattle through in my head quickly in solid yeah. tumours. I think that's absolutely right. So there, yeah. there's no T-score. It's, it's You've either got it, it's presumably T0 or T1, and that's the end that's of your... Right. That, wow, okay, yes, yeah. yeah. And, and as we know in other cancers, volume is really important. Um, you know, absolutely. kidney cancer, four centimetres. <laughs> if it's less than four centimetres, you're probably... If it's more than four centimetres, you know. So um, so I think I think... I, I think there's going to be a lot, uh, quite a revolution in terms of our, you know, risk stratification, staging and understanding of prostate cancer. And hopefully um, we'll get rid of non-visible disease by not biopsying normal prostates. Yeah, yeah. So um, I, I'd like to, we, we talked a little bit about, as you say, there's this ground between watching and waiting and more radical intervention. And, and as you say, it, it can be very difficult for men to make those choices. So we, we all know that radicals and radiotherapy have probably been overdone because there are quite rightly many who are anxious. And as soon as you say to people, you've got cancer on board, their, their natural reaction is we've got to get this out and get rid of it. Um, and in fairness to the average member of the public, they may not understand all of these risk stratifications that we've, we've been uh, talking about sure. here. I was just interested over time what's happened with better imaging and also the availability of HIFU, other strategies. What's this map of treatment in the UK look like? Have we got better at that? Are we, got, are we moving towards that goal of trying to have less radicals and less radiotherapy? Is that? Yeah, I think, yeah, well, it, it, it's less in patients who don't need them and it's, and it's more treatment in patients that do. So, so I, think, I think imaging has meant that we we don't reassure we're less likely to reassure men um, when we shouldn't be reassuring them. So um, historically, um, the cancers at the front part of the prostate, what we call the anterior part of the prostate, were missed. That they, they just didn't exist because the needles never went there. Uh, they were never treated. Those prostates were never removed, and those prostates were never then collected um, in our in our histological um, kind of archives at Johns Hopkins and all these places that uh, drove thinking. Um, and and we all thought that anterior cancers did not exist, um, but of course they, they did. Uh, they just presumably progressed without us knowing and metastasized. You know, um, so 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 all about a third of cancers are anterior, um, and, and th those men do not get missed anymore, which is which, which is which is great. Um, but that does mean that we have to change our our kind of understanding. Um, so our, our old-fashioned risk models are wrong. Um, um, and we just don't know how wrong yet they are. Um, and, and so 
Yes, if, if you've got bulky disease, you can see that on the MRI. You can prepare the individual for that. Um, uh, well, you can add a PSMA PET because you know that you're dealing with bulky disease um, uh, even before you do the biopsy. Um, and, 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 and that you can start having conversations with that individual that they are going to need multimodality therapy. And so they will have much less chance of being undertreated. So they'll get surgery if they're young enough, plus or minus uh, radiotherapy, you know, if if the margins are very tight or there's a bit of residual disease left behind. Um, and But that's all planned up front. And so you're not on the back foot anymore. And so these individuals, um, you know, young men with bulky disease are much more likely to get really good treatment um, uh, and, and sufficient treatment. I think in the past, um, you know, everybody got the same treatment, essentially, and some men were overtreated and some men were undertreated. Um, I think now we're, we're much more likely to get appropriate treatment to the right individual. We're not perfect, uh, but it's much, much, much better than it was. And that includes, you know, um, not um, giving a cancer label to somebody that's not going to benefit from it. And th the main way you do that is to PSA comes in a bit high. You do an MRI. The MRI shows a large prostate, uh, which puts the PSA into context and gives it what we call a low PSA density. So their prostate is making relatively low amounts of PSA per unit volume. Um, and a negative MRI at a low PSA density usually means there's no cancer in the prostate or certainly no clinically significant cancer. And that individual can be reassured and go back to their GP and have a PSA once a year. And they're not saddled with that 20 years of, oh my God, I've got Gleason 3 plus 3, which technically is, um, is, is classified as a cancer. Um, so, so yes, we're much, much better. People listening to this can be very, very reassured that things have improved dramatically. I think, I think actually the UK led this um, and, and MRI diffused very quickly because of NICE and through our MDT process and through our centralization of cancer care in the UK. So this is a good news story about the NHS. Um, you know, um, there's still a little bit of inequity um, the, the, in terms of the number of treatments, so focal treatment, no, there's nobody doing focal treatment, we talked about that earlier, uh, in the north of England, uh, or in Scotland, or in Wales, and so there's, there's a, it tends to be kind of M M25, so it's um, UCL, Imperial, Southampton, um, and uh, Bristol, and a few other places um, offering it. Now, that, that hopefully will change very soon as we train people who will then go and start programmes elsewhere. Um, and so there's still, you know, if you don't get access to a teaching hospital in the right place, you won't be offered that as an opportunity, as, as, as an option. Um, and there, there, I think we're falling a bit behind. So having having started the process, it, you know, if you go to the States now, Hopkins, Mayo Clinic, uh, UCLA, UCSD, you know, all offer, uh, all have a focal th therapy program, um, actually led by people that we've trained, you know, so that they've been much more on the front foot about that so so we've still got some work to do alex yeah and do you and do you, do you see in the future is are there upgrades to the technique itself that might be interesting or do you or is this more about the patient selection going into it is there more refinement that might be possible because i know you in the papers i've read that you've uh, been responsible for it emphasizes very strongly that notion of carefully selected because obviously you don't want to get it wrong in well one particular direction clearly 
and, yeah. and, and deny more radical treatment to somebody who probably ends up needing it. So caution is, is a wise thing. Is it about selection or the technique or both, do you think? Or um, Yeah, when people talk about focal therapy, they get obsessed with the energy source. And um, I, I don't mind. The energy source is just a means to an end. It's just a way of destroying tissue in a relatively um, predictable way. And, and just for the record, we, we use ultrasound. So we focus ultrasound. Um, we use elect high voltage electricity. So you put needles around the cancer and um, that makes the cells kind of pop. Um, uh, people have used laser, which generates heat. Essentially, it's been extremes of heat. Um, cryotherapy is the oldest form of focal therapy, probably been, you know, been used in that way for 40 years or so. Um, and, and that uses extreme cold, uh, which again, results in cellular destruction or destruction to the to the blood supply to the cells. Um, th I mean, th there's no perfect treatment because sadly we have to obey the laws of physics um, and every prostate is different, um, which makes the, con the, the kind of, you know, fluence of light or the passage of sound or the impedance of the tissue uh, different uh, for every patient and, and different parts of the prostate look different to other parts of the prostate. Um, and, and, and so we have to get that right. Um, and we overcome that through a little bit of redundancy. So we give a little bit more energy than is, is required. Um, I mean, I suppose the next generation of technologies will be cancer specific. At the moment, all the technologies that I use are not cancer specific. They require me to put the needles in the right place so that they're spatially selective. Um, and the cancer specific ones will probably um, come from a kind of nanoparticle that, 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 that is, is selectively driven to the cancer. That could be through PSMA PET or some other feature of the cancer and then is, is somehow um, um, initiated um, either through light or ultrasound or ra radiation or, or, or whatever. Um, we've tried to inject into the prostate um, and there's still some interest. So, you know, if you if you can see the cancer and you can inject a toxic substance and we've used a, a PSA cleaved um, toxin, um, but but actually injecting the prostate is really hard uh, because it's full of ducts and you, you, you press hard, <laughs> nothing happens. Then you get into a duct and and the stuff just spreads. Um, but I think I think if you can, if you can get if you can get the stuff you're injecting either through the right kind of needle or um, through through or with an appropriate viscosity like honey or something so that it doesn't go down the ducts, you, you might be able to do that. Um, now, um, modern radiotherapy uh, is a great focal therapy tool. You know, proton beams can do it. Um, pencil beam MRI directed radiotherapy can do it. Um, there, there, there just aren't too many radiotherapies at the moment doing it. And of course, if you give enough radiation, you can ablate uh, and therefore you, you overcome um, uh, radiation resistance. And, you know, so I, I think I think we're going to see growth in very, very targeted radiation because you can do it now. And I think if you, if you look at clinicaltrials.gov, which is the, the way I look at the future and see what people are doing, there's a lot of kind of nanoparticle technology out there um, that's initiated, but usually by light of a certain wavelength. Um, and they tend to exploit the abnormal vasculature of the prostate. Um, but people have been doing that for a while without fantastic success. I think we're gonna need something a little bit more specific. Um, for that. So, so back to your question. So, I, you know, 
the energy is not perfect and yes there will be developments but but um but i think they're going to take time and 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 good focal therapy is all about case selection it's all about case selection so so has the individual um that that wants treatment or you're considering treating uh does he have a lesion that's clinically significant and, and most of them are if you can see it there's always Gleason pattern four in there um, uh, uh, around which you can get a margin without damaging any key structures. So it would be similar to a lumpectomy discussion in a woman versus mastectomy. You know, is the breast big enough? Can I get a and the tumor small enough to allow me to get a margin around it without too much cosmetic destruction? That's the breast. In in the, in the prostate, it's exactly the same conversation, but it's a it's a functional conversation. So, you know, can I destroy that lesion? Um, in its place, plus a kind of five to ten millimeter margin around it, without damaging the rectum, urethra, sphincter, bladder, nerves, etc. And that's that's the judgment bit, you know, which, which is interesting. Um, and that's that's the bit that's hard to teach. Um, uh, and you know, when you see it, uh, you know, immediately. Um, but you 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 get that judgment very quickly. Um, uh, you know, after treating a few patients that were poorly selected, you know, you know, you shouldn't shouldn't do that. So, so that's 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 one of the skills we're trying. So, I'm I'm helping some um, other European countries start some trials in focal therapy, and and actually the most important input was not me helping them direct the needles. They can do that. Uh, it was actually, um, you know, they present ten cases for their for the first session, and and I I I, I might get rid of seven. Of them you know and they were clearly disappointed but you know mm -hmm. we, we were left with three really 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 good cases for focal treatment um and if you select well the cases go very well and the patients are delighted i know uh <clears throat> you and i over uh, well some years ago now worked on looking at anti-antigen strategies in, in uh, men to try and delay the onset of meaningful cancer and those things sadly didn't come to, to fruition I guess in the last 15 years, I spent a lot of my life working on in, in immuno-oncology, where we've been looking at similar strategies. And obviously, the prostate is not something that has been very amenable to using PD-1s, PD-L1s in. Do, do you think there are any, in the longer term, there might be any, be any immunosurveillance techniques that could be useful here? Because presumably, if we've got you know, lower volume of cancer, if we can actually take it out through that kind of mechanism, that would be a fantastic advance. But do, do you think we're still some way out, out from that? Yeah, it's interesting. My colleague, Mark Lynch, um, was was running, this is before COVID, was, was running a um, prostate cancer vaccine, vaccine trial with BioNTech. Um, this is before BioNTech ever thought about using their, their technology right. for COVID. <laughs> Uh, so it's interesting. So, so yeah, there's 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 quite a lot of work. I mean, yeah, the to the toxicity of many of the current uh, therapies would not lend themselves particularly well to very early cancers, um, um, and and they may have an adjuvant role. So, in other words, being used with um, in high risk patients with 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 existing treatments. Yeah. Um, uh, the the as as you've alluded to, prostate cancer has been unimmunogenic. Um, you know, it, 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 it is not like melanoma. It is not like kidney cancer. Um, uh, and and there, may, there may be ways of, of making a, a prostate cancer express more antigen um, uh, in the future. 
so so we're not close to it but but i think we're the prostate will probably be at the back end of um uh, development in terms of immunotherapy um I, I still think there might be some role um somebody contacted me recently you know a company that um is looking for orphan drugs and um i mentioned dutasteride uh which which i think i i'm pretty sure it it, it does reduce the um progression of, of these small prostate cancers. Um, and and it, it might be that dutasteride is worth another look at in in in, a, in some modern indications, you know, um, as an adjuvant to active surveillance, as an adjuvant to focal therapy, you know, to kind of to, um, you know, you, you treat the uh, aggressive disease and then you want something to slow down any progression that might occur in the background disease. Um, so I think there's some niche opportunities for drugs that that haven't made it historically for whatever reason uh and I'd, I'd be keen to kind of look at that again um so so we remain open um uh to, to to um using the immune system both for detection you know the immune system may be the first thing to recognize a cancer uh, and it may be that you know a modern diagnostic is an immune diagnostic uh, but also um you know to help in either the chronic management of or indeed the treatment of disease in the future. But it's not going to happen immediately. So I don't think we should listeners shouldn't uh, be waiting or delaying treatment because uh, an immune therapy is going to be available in the next year or so.